G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Coming to you from Whitehall, opposite 10 Downing Street in London, where, according to my calculations, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is due to make an appearance any minute now. It's been six months since he was in London for the King's coronation, which by Airbus Albo's standards is an absolute eternity. He's been to 13 other countries since then, or 14 if you include Australia. And you'd have to say, given the parlous state of British politics at the moment, Albo would feel right at home here. But do you get the feeling as you watch Albo flying around the world, hobnobbing with putative presidents and prime ministers, that none of those leaders is actually the one pulling the strings? Certainly none of them seems to be in control of excessive or illegal immigration which is a global phenomenon now, and the violent consequences of it are painfully apparent on the streets of London, Melbourne and Sydney right now. Here is a curious coincidence from just last week. As the High Court of Australia delivered a decision that allowed 83 dangerous refugee criminals into the Australian community, the Supreme Court here deemed the British government's policy to send illegal migrants to Rwanda unlawful. Both of these judicial decisions go against the wishes and the welfare of the citizens of Australia and Britain, not to mention diminish the sovereignty of the Western civilizations that we inherited. But don't rely on your elected representatives to defend civilization against the barbarism that indiscriminate immigration sometimes brings. Conservative uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak last week sacked his home, his home Secretary, Suella Braverman, for expressing legitimate concerns about Muslims desecrating statues and calling for Jewish genocide on the streets of London. And here is how Anthony Albanese deals with the same issue. I have a track record on this and I'm proud of it. But I also have a track record of standing up Order. for the rights and for justice of Palestinian people. Yeah. And I make no apologies for being a consistent supporter of a two-state solution. Yeah. Now, Jewish Australians Order. are fearful at the Member moment. The sort of activity that is occurring is scaring them and I stand with them. Yeah. No one, no one should threaten people because of their religion or their race in this country. But it is also the case, it is also the case that Arab Australians and Islamic Australians and women wearing hijabs in the streets of Sydney and Melbourne are being threatened and I stand against that as well. Like Sunak, Albo is frightened to call out the Islamic provocateurs of the violence because that would alienate key electorates. Whether that happens at the expense of social cohesion, let alone our civilization, matters little to either of them. Well, some people might have been convinced by Albo's equivocation, but fewer people would be convinced by this. And I make no apologies for trying to bring communities together, not divide them because that's the role of political leaders. But at a time, at a time Order. when there is, Order. there is social division, leaders have a choice. 
They have a choice to either bring people together or divide them. To either look for unity or look for opportunism. The idea, the idea of selective human rights is one that I stand against. Well, as you can see behind me, Remembrance Day celebrations are still going on in Whitehall more than a week after Remembrance Day. This, of course, is something that the Poms do very well, but as a result, I've had to move down the road a little bit to escape the crowds. As for Anthony Albanese saying he opposes selective human rights, well, that's a bit rich. What was the voice to Parliament if it wasn't the selective human rights of one racial group over another? No wonder Albo's polls and popularity are slipping. The Australian people just aren't falling for it anymore. Opposition leader Peter Dutton got it right when he pleaded in Parliament for Anthony Albanese to cancel his overseas trip and focus on social cohesion at home. Have a listen. The House 1 expresses its grave concern at the vicious rise of anti-Semitic vilification in our country and the breakdown in social cohesion occurring in our communities. 2 expresses its grave concern that social disharmony has reached dangerous levels and that community safety is now at significant risk. Three, condemns the Prime Minister's failure to show the strong leadership required to overcome divisions within his own caucus to stamp out anti-Semitism and bring our country together. And therefore calls on the Prime Minister to one, understand that this, pri that this priority, that his priority must be the protection of the Australian community at home. Prime Minister, don't leave this country until you have dealt with these issues. Don't hop on the plane again to the United States. You've just met with President Biden, an incredibly important relationship, but you've just met with the President. The first responsibility for you, Prime Minister, is to be here and take care of the Australian public. Cancel an overseas trip to focus on social cohesion at home? You may as well ask Vladimir Putin to stop invading Ukraine. Besides, Albo had more important people to talk to. Here he is with Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the investment company behind the push for listed companies to comply with the social and environmental justice policies that Albo's government endorses. You reckon Larry Fink gives a damn about your rising cost of living or violence on the streets of Melbourne or Sydney? Yeah, neither does Albo. He was too busy partying with Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau and others at a Gwen Stefani concert. Compared to that, focusing on social cohesion at home runs a boring distant second. Earlier today, I spoke with a refreshingly honest MP, Andrew Bridgen, the member for the House of Commons for North West Leicestershire. You might not have heard of him, but he's a pretty compelling character. He's like a cross between Mark Latham and Craig Kelly. He was kicked out of the Conservative Party this year for speaking up about the vaccines. Here is a short but sensational sample of what he told me. I'll, I'll let you into a secret that before they threw me out the party, they, they more or less, the, well, the party said to me, they want to cover the vaccine harms up for 20 years. So I was told when I explained all my concerns, a, a party grandee told me the party line. So at the end of the hour, when I've explained all my concerns about what the vaccines are, are doing to people, not to vaccinate small children, everything else, they turned around to me and said, Andrew, there's currently no political appetite for your views on the vaccine. There may well be in 20 years time and you're probably going to be proven right then. And there's more coming up in my extended interview with Andrew in a minute. You won't want to miss it. But first, 
There is another big issue in Australia, and that is whether or not our benevolent government will allow you to read, hear, or say whatever you think. Now, this is, of course, the issue of free speech, which tens of thousands of Australians have died defending. The Misinformation and Disinformation Bill received 23,000 mostly negative responses from the public when it was first proposed, and so the government has put it on the back burner for Communications Minister Michelle Rowland to supposedly improve it. But don't be fooled. Rowland and the government remain committed to compromising your free speech in the guise of protecting you from harmful posts online. Now remember the last time this happened, it was when the government conspired with big tech, the legacy media and big pharma to lock us up and jab us with experimental gene therapies. We now know that the whole thing was based on misinformation from none other than the government itself. If this, if this bill gets up, which the government hopes to do sometime next year, freedom in Australia will be dead. You won't hear much about this in the legacy media, but we will keep talking about it on ADH because it is an issue that is very dear to all of us and I hope to you too. To see how free speech really works, consider what happened at the Daily Wire last week. That's the independent news organisation co-owned by commentator Ben Shapiro and his friend Jeremy Boring. Shapiro, who is Jewish, criticised Candace Owens, who's also a commentator on The Daily Wire, for her stance against Israel in the war against Hamas. In response to that, Owens posted a comment online saying she couldn't serve both God and money, to which Shapiro replied, well, if she feels that strongly about it, perhaps she should resign. And that is where Jeremy Boring stepped in, saying this. Candace is paid to give her opinion, not mine or Ben's, unless those opinions run afoul of the law or she violates the terms of her contract in some way, her job is secure and she is welcome at Daily Wire. Well, that is how you do free speech. Now, let's go to my interview with Andrew Bridgen. Okay, well, here I am with Andrew Bridgen uh, of the Reclaim Party, uh, formerly of the Conservatives, and we'll get to that in a minute. Andrew, thanks for welcoming me into your palatial office. Yes, welcome to uh, one of the offices furthest away from the chamber, yeah. um, and probably one of the smallest. Um, as you can see, they've they boarded my window up, and I, I'm, I'm actually convinced that it's it's fully uh, surveilled. If you know I mean. <laughs> okay. so, We're trying so, not to so, say it. So listen in, guys. You'll yeah. enjoy this. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're going to revisit the speech that you delivered in the Commons uh, just about a month ago, in which you said, uh, and I'll quote just a few of the, the figures that you mentioned during that speech, one of which was that uh, deaths... In the second half of 2021, deaths of men aged 15 to 19 were up by two per day. Ambulance call-outs went from 2,000 a day to 2,500. And all deaths of people under 65 years of age increased by about 50%. Now, as this happened during the early stages of the vaccine rollout, it's reasonable to think that perhaps the two might be related. Now, Andrew, you had to go through, jump through all sorts of hoops to get that speech delivered in the House of Commons. 
Tell me what you had to go through and why was the Commons deserted when you delivered it? Well, I had uh, been looking at the data and I've been speaking out about the vaccines. Uh, I spoke out last December when the UK government tried to vaccinate, well, the MHRA asked for permission to vaccinate down to babies of six months. I knew that uh, there'd be a huge backlash from the establishment for me objecting to that, but I knew that I wasn't going to be sacrificing my political career for nothing, that I knew that even the most pro-vaccine person, I could persuade them that these small infants were at no, healthy infants were at no risk from COVID, but there was a they'd have to perceive there was some risk from the vaccines. And despite the government uh, trashing my speech and saying I was a conspiracy theorist, they never dared vaccinate healthy children down to the age of six months in the UK, which they right. did in other countries. Yep. Um, I then spoke out in March uh, about using, quoting the government's own figures for the efficacy and safety of the booster campaign, which almost two thirds of NHS staff or health service staff refused to take last autumn. Right. And it's growing. Yeah. Um, and again, the government said that uh, I was talking uh, nonsense, but, um, but within two weeks, they then limited the, vac the booster rollout to the over 75s, where everyone had been having it before that. So, yep. so that, that, that all worked. I'd also been putting every week for a, for a debate on excess deaths, because even a cursory look last autumn at the data showed that there was a very close uh, correlation between um, vaccine uptake and excess deaths in developed countries and around the world. So, so I've been asking every week, and you put, there's lots of ways in our parliament you can get a debate on excess deaths, or, or a debate on anything. You, you, you can ask for an adjournment debate, which is the debate at the end of the day, uh, of the sitting. Uh, you can ask for a Westminster Hall debate, which is a minor chamber we've also got on, 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 uh, on, the, on the palace grounds. Um, or there's a backbench business debate, which you need other MPs to sign. Well, I went plenty of times to the other end of the tea room and said to the the Labour MPs and others, if you sign this form, we can have a debate <clears throat> for three hours on excess deaths. And if you were so minded and you wish to make a political point, you could point out that the the, uh, the Tories have been running the health service for 13 years and it's a bit of a shambles. And you, you might want to make a political point that that could be a contributing factor to the excess can deaths. Can I just interrupt you there? Were you a member of the Tories at that point? Yes. You were? So you were campaigning against the government? I wanted, I wanted the debate and I was mm. point, merely pointing out that, that if, if the socialists wanted to make a political point, this was a good vehicle for them to do. It would work for them. But when the whole of the Labour Party turned around to me six months ago, eight months ago and said, Andrew, we don't want to talk about excess deaths. I mean, the job of the opposition is to hold the government to count. As I've said in the chamber, I could understand the government not wanting to talk about excess deaths. But what I'm perplexed is why the opposition parties don't want to talk about it either. Well, this is exactly... And it's not democracy. I mean, exactly. that is not democracy. So I put, in, yeah. I put in over 20 times, and every time it came back on my computer at the end of the week, unsuccessful in ballot. Who makes that decision? Yeah, well, I suppose it's random, and it happens from the Speaker's office, which is supposedly impartial, but all I'll say is, you can see why I don't play the lottery, don't you? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so 20 times. Yeah. Uh, and, th and then I produced a, a little... Um, a little mini-documentary which I recommend to your viewers. It's called Thalidomide, The Real Story by Andrew Bridgen. And I, we did some research on it and I filmed some clips and fascinatingly, thalidomide, a, a, a flawed pharmaceutical, was withdrawn in 1961 in the UK. And it was discovered by, uh, by Nurse Swift, uh, Swift was it, or Swallow? 
nurse swallow in mm. Australia. Uh, she uncovered the, the link between thalidomide and the birth defects. Right, okay. Yes, yeah, so Dr. McBride's surgery in Sydney. Well, and anyway, so yes. the, what actually happened here is when, when we did the research into it, um, it was 11 years from when they withdrew thalidomide before we could ever have a debate in, in the House of Commons about it. No one could talk about it for 11 years. And then I, I got the court papers from Strasbourg at the, 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 the Human Rights Court there, and three judges had ruled that consecutive speakers of the House of Commons had deliberately suppressed debate on thalidomide for 11 years. And I, Is this I, from both sides of politics? Yes, and I, I, I sent that little data to the current speaker, and then mysteriously, within a week, I got a, got a debate. Oh, congratulations. I'm well, unsure yes. there's no correlation that's between right. those. <laughs> that's just... You know, because correlation uh, is not causation. Exactly. Is it? We know no, that. That's right. <laughs> I'm sure that sending him that video and threatening him that uh, perhaps uh, there might be some action later if it's found that he'd suppressed debate on excess deaths. No, never. Well, I mean, and good on you for drawing and, some and, sort of analogy that, between this and thalidomide because, you know, these are similar conspiracies. Now, the, 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 the correlation again here is with Australia. Both our major parties seem to be in on this. What's your take on how both sides of politics seem to be colluding with Big well, Pharma? Well, if I was being generous, and I'm not minded necessarily to be, be generous, uh, I would say that they have both parties during the... There was no opposition during the uh, pandemic response. If anything, the socialists wanted longer lockdowns, mm. more mandates, yeah. forcing people to have medication that was experimental. So there's... If I'm generous, both sides of the house have got a lot of political reputation and capital behind. We did a great job looking after you during the uh, the pandemic, and we had the furlough scheme, which put 400, 500 billion pounds on the national debt, which mm. our great grandchildren will never be able to repay. Uh, Same in Australia. Yep. yep. Well, I mean, so, uh, and we, we've got a general election probably in the next 12 months. If not, it has mm. to be by January next year. That may be the long stop data. I think we may go to, all the way there. But neither of the part, major, none of the major parties want this to unravel before the general election. It's, that's political. Well, if, you, if, if you're to look at another way, yeah. um, they're all corrupt. Well, that's, let's get back to that in a second. Well, let's look into that because you were actually part of the government. You're one of the few politicians who are who were part of this, uh, these policies, who has since uh, been kicked out of his party. There's a, the, your, your, um, your equivalent in Australia is a wonderful gentleman called Craig Kelly, who was a member of the uh, government during the lockdowns and vaccine rollouts. Tell me your insight to how and why these policies evolved during COVID. Well, we had a, a long established, as I understand it, um, pandemic response document, which had been built up over, you know, with collective knowledge uh, over decades. And that was just thrown in the bin. And then we went for the WHO recommendations of, uh, of um, lockdowns, furlough schemes, mandatory vaccinations, and uh, mysteriously, I mean, the same bad decisions, apart from in Sweden, where they rejected the WHO recommendations for lockdowns, were adopted basically by governments across the world. <clears throat> it just seems to be a um, sort of coordinated madness. But did you see, how did you feel as being part of the government that, that was in? Well, I voted, I, I, I voted for the first lockdown because I don't think anyone knew what was going on yep. to start with. And yep. let's, let's see what's going on. Everyone's locking down. Um, but 
Amazingly, a long time ago at university at Nottingham, I studied biological sciences with biochemistry and my specialisations in my degree were genetics, virology and behaviour. And uh, so I can understand the scientific papers. And a lot of people sent me a lot of scientific papers. And I was also watching a lot of eminent scientists who I'd got the greatest respect for speak against the narrative and be cancelled and shut down well, at, with all at, no, that... at no personal gain to themselves. In fact, a huge risk to themselves. But they, but they kept speaking what they believed to be their truth. And, and as soon as people started saying the science is settled, well, I mean, that's rubbish because science is never settled. Half of what doctors are taught in, in, in medical school within 10 years will be proven to be completely wrong. Mm. They'll have to be retrained. So the science is never settled. With, and all, that, with all that knowledge and expertise and a degree in, in uh, uh, biological, uh, what was it, molecular biology, wasn't it? Biological sciences. Biological sciences. I imagine Boris would have been on the phone every day saying, Andrew, what do you think about all these viruses? Well, I, well, well, I, did, say to, I did mention to the chief, I said, look, if you want someone who actually at least can read the papers, I'm here for, but they never came back to me. Mm. And I, I did actually send, in early uh, 2020, I sent the, uh, some scientific data, some papers on the efficacy of, uh, of ivermectin and hydrochloroquine mm. uh, to the government and said, you need to check these out. This looks, they could have some very useful uh, efficacy here for dealing with this virus. And I also sent them to Jeremy Hunt, who's now the Chancellor, who used to be the Chair of the Health Select Committee. And I chased up the government, nothing came back, and I, I rang up Jeremy Hunt a week later and said, Jeremy, if you get those papers, I mean, this is important for dealing with this virus. And Jeremy Hunt said to me, Andrew, don't send me scientific papers, I don't understand them, um, don't bother. Well, I mean, he, he'd run the health service for seven years and the thought that he couldn't understand a scientific paper or, or didn't have access to anyone who could explain one to him, I thought was quite shocking. Yeah. But that was the response I got from Jeremy Hunt. Well, that seems to be emblematic of the entire way all these policies were devised. Well, I suppose if you say, I don't understand anything about it, then if it turned out you'd made very bad decisions, you could say, well, I, I didn't know anything about it anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's all right then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, in earlier this year, you, you said that the... Uh, that the vaccine rollout was, I think, the greatest uh, crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Um, and as a result, the Conservative Party kicked you out of the party. You are now a member of the uh, Reclaim Party, founded by the great Lawrence Fox, who's a good friend of ADH TV. Now, firstly, Andrew, do you stand by that statement? Um, I do, and I was accused of anti-Semitism for using the Holocaust as a timeline, a marker. Um, I actually explained to, to the party at the time that I was actually requoting a Jewish gentleman. Uh, so I was requoting a paper from uh, Dr. Josh Getchko of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, and in no way was it anti-Semitic. Uh, in fact, 25 of the, of the world's leading Jewish scientists and doctors wrote to Rishi Sunak and said, what are you doing accusing Andrew Bridgen of anti-Semitism for this? Of course, they, they wrote for three times recorded delivery again, as the Prime Minister always does. Anything he doesn't want to answer, he just doesn't answer and ignore. So they, ne they never even got an acknowledgement, even though they sent it recorded delivery three times. Just like I didn't get an answer from the, the letter I sent on the 7th of August, which proves, with the evidence from Professor Dr. Mm. Dr. Getzko from Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who's actually a criminologist, so he found out how Pfizer committed the fraud of the bait and switch, whereby the vaccine they actually got approval for was not the one they rolled out around the world. And all that evidence, 44 pages of evidence, which is unequivocal. Um, number 10 have had that since the 7th of August. 
they will not respond to it because they can't respond because it's a fact. So anyone who had the Pfizer vaccine anywhere in the world, you had an untested vaccine and I can prove it. Why does there, there seems to be, it's reasonable to think that there is some sort of collaboration going on between big government and big pharma. What's your opinion? It has all that uh, impression. It wouldn't be the first time. The fact that they've given immunity from prosecution. Mm. I think we'll break those immunities though because uh, I think they've committed fraud uh, during the trials and the rollouts and I think fraud invalidates any immunity from prosecution, so. Right, oh, okay, so what's your, what, what's your prediction? How do you think all this will pan out? I mean, you well, made I'll, an analogy to thalidomide, which took 11 years to come. Yes, well, well I'll, I'll let you into a secret, that before they threw me out the party, they, they more or less, the, well, the party said to me, they want to cover the vaccine harms up for 20 years. So I was told, when I explained all my concerns, a, a party grandee, told me the party line. So at the end of the hour, when I've explained all my concerns about what the vaccines are doing to people, not to vaccinate small children, everything else, they turned around to me and said, Andrew, there's currently no political appetite for your views on the vaccine. There may well be in 20 years time and you're probably gonna be proven right then. But in the meantime, you need to bear in mind that you're taking on the most powerful vested interest in the world with all the personal risk for you, which that will entail. And that's that's quite a threat. It's quite a threat, but I mean, at that point, I, I, I thought the guy I was speaking to was going to come on board and be a friend and, and supporter and stick with the people. And then I realised he'd sold his soul out. So I left the meeting at that point and then I was expelled from the party permanently. So now you're with Reclaim. Uh, they, similarly in Australia, uh, parties like the, uh, the Liberal Democrats and, the, um, and One Nation and, and United Australia Party, they seem to be the ones really standing up for ordinary people. How do you define, how would you define the Reclaim Party to people in Australia? What, what do you stand for? Well, we, we stand for freedom of speech, freedom of expression, because without that, there are no other f- freedoms. We can't mm. debate anything properly. What I've actually stood up against is I've stood out and said, look, these vaccines are harmful and we need to, an investigation. I've, I've explained about the excess deaths. We've got something going on in our country, which is also going across the developed world. We've got the sexualisation of our children mm. through the WHO sexuality education guidelines. And we've also got this uh, trans ideology being pushed in schools, that uh, the ludicrous concept that men can be women and women can be men. Mm. Well, I mean, if you're teaching that to small children, I mean, they have no certainty about anything in the world. Because one of the, one of the few building blocks of life is, you know the difference between boys and girls. Yeah. There are boys and girls. So. Uh, that's happening in our country. It's actually illegal under the 92 Education Act because it is an indoctrination with an ideology because it's not science. I mean, this is ludicrous. But what happened? And, to then, the... and then we've got the uh, obviously the net uh, the net zero scam, which is yeah. the huge control uh, mechanism. It's always for your own good, so they you know can bring in the digital ID and the digital currency, so we can control your behaviour to save the planet. Well. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to save them when we when we rise up. To be honest, <laughs> just about had enough of all that's of them. Can't we just get the, back to normal? <laughs> that's the kind of talk we like on ADH. Let's all rise up against these tyrants. Now you mentioned central bank digital currencies. This is really flying under the radar in Australia, but it's it's quite an issue here. Well, they're now, already. I mean, the, the digital currencies. I, I'm told they're they're already the digital IDs already. Our current prime minister Rishi Sunak. He'll be no doubt giving the contract to Infosys, a company owned by his father-in-law. Yep. To, to bring in. And of course, I don't know if in Australia you realise that you know, many, quite a few years ago, 
Rishi Sunak, our Prime Minister, who, who not been elected by anybody, by the way, he just got in somehow yeah. or other. Um, he, uh, he was an investment banker and he set a fund up in the Cayman Islands and it mysteriously bought shares in a company no one had heard of. It's called Moderna. He bought £500 million worth in, in that trust when they'd never made a product. He owns 11% and Moderna had the favoured partner of the UK government, the Australian government, the Canadian government, a billion pounds from our government to build a factory and contracts for 150 million of these experimental mRNA vaccines every year for 10 years. That sounds like a golden edged, gilt edge contract. And, and clearly the Prime Minister is a major beneficiary. I mean, they're not, well, even, they're not even subtle about the corruption no. anymore. Yeah, well, why isn't that level of corruption, if it's that obvious and that blatant, why isn't that being well, the prime prosecuted? Minister, the Prime Minister will not admit it. And he'll say that all of his investments are now in a blind trust and he doesn't know what's happening to them. But he knows what he invested in, doesn't he, before he yeah. put them in the blind trust. So it's being managed by someone else, so it doesn't matter. I think he, know, I think he know, probably knows what he bought, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. if you were the trust manager and you sold those Moderna yeah. shares, where do you think, it, you think yeah. you'd, be a, you'd be in a job at the end of the week? No. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of people who aren't elected, David Cameron has been parachuted into the House of Lords. Now, what's your opinion? Who represents ordinary British people more, David Cameron or Suella Braverman? Well, obviously, I, I knew David Cameron. Um, he was leader of the Conservative Party when we were in opposition, and I was elected in 2010, and he came, became Prime Minister then in a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. We didn't win enough seats. Well. David Cameron and I have got bad blood between us. Um, before I won my seat in North West Leicestershire, which was the most deprived seat in Leicestershire, yeah. it's now the richest, thanks to after 14 years of me being the MP. Oh, but, congratulations. But, but Cameron told me that in front of my constituents in 2008 that uh, my seat was a dump, uh, the Conservatives would never win it, and he told me that, I wasn't, that the party weren't giving me any money for my campaign because it was a ho hopeless seat. So I told him that it was my home, that I would win it, I'd use my own money for the campaign, and I did say to him, in that, if you feel like that, never ever come to my constituency again. And to be honest, he is a man of his word, he, he never did. <laughs> and that suited both of us. And when Cameron lost, uh, he, obviously he was for Remain, I, I ran the campaign for, for leave in the East Midlands. Mm -hmm. That's the only time I was ever offered a ministerial role. Cameron's team offered me immigration minister if I campaigned for Remain. And I went to see him and his team and said, you really hate me, don't you? So you want me to be immigration minister with no control over immigration, just come in the chamber every month and get hammered by the members because you can't control it because we're in the European Union. I said, you must be joking. I said, I'm, I'm backing leave and we're going to win. And when we won, um, I was pretty pleased and Cameron obviously had to go and he resigned. Yep. But um, my quote was, uh, was in the Daily Mail and it's, um, it's the one that's... Looking back now, I think it was probably a little harsh, but I mean, it is what it is. Mm. And I said, I'm not going to stab David Cameron in, in the back. I'm going to stab him in the front because I want to see the look in his eye when I push the knife in. But I am going to twist it because I need it back for George Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they do politics differently here in the UK. I think I prefer it. Um, now, Andrew, you will be encountering him in the, in the corridors of power, won't you? I mean, he, well, he can't speak in our chamber because he's, he's in the Lords, so we're in a right. position where the Foreign Secretary um, can't speak in, in the Commons. And we've also got another lot of bad blood because I think it was 2014, was it 20, uh, Cameron and Obama 
We'd just uh, had a war in Libya, which was an absolute disaster for the people there. And then they came back and they wanted us to invade Syria. Well, I led the 82 Conservative MP rebellion that stopped us going to war in Syria uh, with that. And I remember Cameron telling me that that doesn't matter because Obama's going to go in anyway. Well, Obama didn't go in. Right. Um, so um, he's a bit of a warmonger. And um, it's pretty clear that uh, the, the establishment are, are, are shepping at us towards uh, the prospect of a third world war. Um, well, again, well, and, 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 and I guess that Cameron's probably your man. You've got, you've got the green, the Greensill scandal that you should have a look at. Uh, yeah. That he was, yes, he, he said when he left office that the next scandal will be a lobbying scandal, and then he was involved in it because uh, he he took like eight million from a company that was working with contracts with the government after he'd left office, and then went bankrupt. But he got his eight million out. Right. Okay. But speaking of war, the, I mean, we are on. We do seem to be on the verge of war. Is is the appointment of Cameron uh, exacerbating that? Well, I think so. And he's obviously got clear links back into Obama's uh, regime. And if you think Joe Biden's actually running America, I mean, you, <laughs> you're, I you're, as delusion, off you're as delusional <laughs> as Joe Biden is. I'll buy that bridge now. <laughs> so I mean, Obama, Obama's team on, and Obama himself are, uh, are no doubt in the Oval Office. So I mean, yep. it's sort of like almost rebuilding the old team. So, yeah. I mean, was, there was a comment about Cameron. He always said, you know, to Blair, that, that you know, he was the heir to Blair, which, you know, mm -hmm. another despicable politician that really damaged yep. our institutions, Tony Blair, um, the man who wants to take over from Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum next year. Is so that the, the whole, the whole okay. team's The whole team's coming back together yeah, they're again. they're reforming the band. Yes, <laughs> a coalition of yes. the bad. Yes. And I yes. often said that uh, all of our institutions in the UK have, have now been corrupted and, and they decay. But there are good apples in the barrel, but there are mm. all, all the apples at the top of the barrel are rotten. Yeah. And, and therefore, every, every apple that seeks to rise to the top, it's, it's rotted on the way up. Just going back to COVID, because I want to mention the fact that Andrew did mention South Australia in that speech in the Commons as a, as a good control group for the efficacy of the vaccines. Can you elaborate on, uh, just talk about how global this yes. problem is and how Australia is a well, good example of Well, obviously, when, when COVID came into the UK, it was, it was our winter time, but it was, uh, it was summer in the Southern, southern mm. Hemisphere. So you have less uh, propensity to get respiratory illness. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot less COVID being transmitted. You're outside, you're uh, having fresh air and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you've got the vaccine, so the southern hemisphere countries are a good control. So the the excess, you can attribute the excess deaths more yeah. more reliably to the vaccines well, than I think, you could I, to COVID. I think because by December, when is it, twenty one, or yeah. there was only a thousand cases of COVID in in South Australia, but you'd had a mass vaccine rollout and you were suffering vaccine harms and excess deaths. Yeah. Um, I can share with you that we've got some leaked data, which should be the raw data uh, from New Zealand, which, uh, which I think will be devastating. We're hopefully going to be racing when we've crunched all the numbers with the statisticians. Um, that should be compelling. So I'll guarantee you now, as I stated in my speech in, in our chamber a few weeks ago, um, that our Office of National Statistics figures are crooked. They're crooked. Yep. They're understating the deaths. What's actually happening is a lot of the concerning deaths of young people who shouldn't be dropping dead with heart attacks on football fields or hockey fields or whatever, uh, they're being referred to coroners. And that means that they're not going in the weekly death 
figures. And yeah, what's happened? Ones that are referred to coroners are delayed, so they're not counted uh, in. But, but what yep. also has happened is that the coroners have not been given any extra resources. Right. So with, I, I believe, thousands and thousands of deaths being referred to as, as needing investigation, that's put several years delay on matters, and it'll be several years before the... So we don't actually know now how many people really died in 2021 or 2022 or, or even this year. What we do know is it's a lot more than the, the official figures that are coming out. And the ONS admitted that the data that they were withholding, which they wouldn't admit to, and this is, you know, supposedly a, uh, an institution of, you know, transparency and openness and figures, when, and there shouldn't be any... any uh, Obfuscation in figures, should we? Then, so yeah. They said that the the data that they were withholding was statistically significant. They refused to even release the anonymised data. Um, and as I pointed out in the chamber, the one thing it's quite right that any suspicious or concerning death should be investigated. Yeah. But one thing a coroner's report can't do is bring someone back to, from the dead. And those deaths should have been reported the week they happened because they're not yeah. going to change, are they? No, Sadly, that's right. They're not going to change. Indeed, they and are, also they are deaths. Yeah. And also, if we, we actually had two um, extra deaths um, in 2022 every day in the sort of 15 to 19 year old mm. male, two a day. It, um, but it could be an awful lot more than that if if all of these deaths that have been referred to coroners were included, and we just can't get the government bodies to, to release the real data. Well, like in Australia, there is a groundswell of frustration and anger about all this. Now, your people in parliament or people in government are <clears throat> telling you that there isn't a political appetite for this sort of stuff. I'd argue in Australia that there are many tens, hundreds of thousands of people who are extremely angry about what's been imposed on <clears throat> ordinary Australians and ordinary Britons. What's your feeling? Is there a groundswell of anger and frustration in Britain that politicians are ignoring? Absolutely, and it's growing and people are increasingly... I mean, one of the reasons, there are many things that aren't right in, in our collective countries at the moment, or so-called democracies. Uh, I normally concentrate on the vaccine harms and the vaccine deaths because, very sadly, the, the bodies keep piling up. Mm. And most families, <clears throat> most people will, will know someone now, they believe, who probably has been badly affected or died because of the vaccines. And that's not going to, going to go away. I will share with you that, uh, without mentioning any names, but the week before summer recess here, so back in July, um, a minister came up to me privately, no witnesses, but said, uh, Andrew, you do realise that my sister's just taken the Moderna booster and now paralysed from the neck down? So that's Guillain-Barre syndrome locked in and uh, I said well that's really sad to hear but uh, you know, you'll have to speak out now you, now you know and this well you know she's a nurse and uh, she works for the NHS so and and the doctors are fairly confident she, she'd probably walk again and I said well you don't have to name names you know it's now your duty you have to speak out and uh, they turned around and said no, I'm not speaking out I just walked off and didn't speak out. Did you know that politicians were that cowardly? Well, I thought if, if you won't do it for your sister, you're not doing it for your constituents, are you? No. And they point. said to me, why are you willing to sacrifice your career on the hill of vaccine harms? I said, because that's the, that's the hill you're killing my people on. Well said. Andrew, thanks for your time. Thank you. That was Andrew Bridgen, the outspoken member for North West Leicestershire in the House of Commons. And I think you might be hearing a bit more from him on ADH in the future. Well, it's late afternoon here now, as you can tell by the dying light. 
and there's still no sign of Albo on Whitehall. So in the absence of an exclusive interview with the Prime Minister of Australia, that is all from me from London for this week. Thanks a lot for watching. I'll see you next Monday at 7 o'clock. Good night.